0: So I was blessed this last family vacation to do something I've never done before in all my 54 years on this globe, and uh, that is to go on a whale watch. How many of you have have gone on a whale watch? It's pretty amazing, really, yeah. So I've missed that for 54 years, but I have a grandson who's really into nature and loves those sorts of things, and uh, I was willing to to brave the Atlantic with him to see what we could see. We left out of St. Andrew's Harbor. We were the last boat going out that evening. It was the 5 p.m. Whale Watch. After we slinked through a series of islands, we got out sort of into the open sea a bit at least, and we saw some finback whales, which were pretty impressive. And we had heard uh, of some spotting of some minke whales. And then the captain came uh, over the intercom and he said, well, I've just heard that uh, there have been some humpback whales spotted out a little further. It's a little early in the season. It was in July for humpback whales to be that far north. At least that's what we were told. And he said, I think we're going to go out and try to find them. And we were all fans of that. So we got down underneath the catamaran. We got inside. And he put the hammer down and took off out of there and water's flying all over the place and we're bouncing all over the place. But we got out to the obviously to the to the larger sea and we started to see some some you know mist flying out of the ocean. But that must be one, that must be one. We got out actually, we found some humpback whales. And eventually we made our way up to them where they were, you know, that great tail comes out and down it goes. And and we so we stayed in that area. And then we looked a little bit further, a little further to the left. All of a sudden the tail comes out, but it stays out. And it's waving at us. Wow. And it's slapping the water and slapping the water. And then it goes away and then it comes up again. And it does it again. And we're all just enamored. And the captain's moving us over so we can get a better look at that. What are they doing? There's a name for it. I forget what it was. But basically, this this whale, the humpback whale, is known as the clown of the sea. Who knew? They like to play. And that's what this one was doing. And there was a a mother and a calf, and they were flipping and flopping, and fins were coming out, and it was amazing. And twice, uh, twice a huge whale came out of the water completely, breached, right in front of us. It was amazing. We had knowledgeable guides on that trip and one of the folks that was on the tour asked one of our guides during all this activity, what's that one doing? What's that whale doing? Why is that whale doing that? Well it's kind of a great question because like who could ever really answer it? You can't talk to the whale. You can't really get the motivation of the whale. But this is what she said. I like what she said, you know, because I did a little research when I got back, because that's just the way I am. And it's all, sometimes they communicate when they do this, is all kinds of theories. This is what she said. She said, well, he's just trying to figure out how to be a whale. <laughs> it's a little calf, and he's just trying to figure out how to be a whale. As we dig into our text this morning from Exodus, we have a front row See, not to a whale watch, obviously, but to a very similar scenario, we are looking at recently redeemed slaves who are trying to figure out how to be children of God. Now, one might think that that comes naturally, right? You, you get rescued, you get redeemed, and, and, you, and then you know everything that you ought to do. One might think that it would come naturally to be a child of God, but it doesn't. And we Christians know this, Right? Right, giving our lives to Jesus, accepting Him as our Lord and Savior, acknowledging the cross, acknowledging our own sins and transgressions, seeking forgiveness—doing all of that does not automatically instill in us proper attitudes and actions. Nor does it automatically eradicate from us the thoughts and behaviors that are that are unbefitting and unbecoming. For a Christian, when we give ourselves to Jesus, we are at the beginning of a journey, of a a pilgrimage to a promised land that we will not actually arrive at or enter in this life. Theologians have a, a term for this journey. They call it sanctification. Sanctification is the process of being made holy. It's a process of getting cleaned up. It's a process of getting ready to be used by God and you know what it doesn't happen all at once and it doesn't happen without effort and it doesn't happen without challenges, corrections. In some way, we like the Israelites are all involved in this lifelong process of figuring out how to be children of God. Father, we humble ourselves and sit now be. For your word we we place ourselves under it god that you might speak to our hearts and our minds convincing and convicting us holy spirit of the wisdom and truth you want us to receive this day the things that will make our lives more holy that will give you more glory the glory that you deserve we pray it would be so in jesus name amen the Israelites have crossed the Red Sea. They're beginning to live under new ownership. They no longer belong to Pharaoh. They have a new master, and this new master is God himself. And this God, this master, is invested in them. He is for them. He is not against them. He is willing to help them to learn to live as his children. He wants to show them what pleases him. He wants to show them what is good for them. And one of the ways that he will do this is, And one of the ways that he still does it is through testing. Two times in that larger exit of narrative 15, 16, God is said to test his people. And then in the portion that we read this morning out of chapter 17, we see that the people turn it around and they are the ones who test God. Hence the name of this message, test or trust. Will we trust God or will we test God? God tests his people. Psalm 11:5 says, the Lord tests the righteous. Now, when we say that God tests, we should clarify, God tests, yes, but he never tempts. Sometimes we get those things confused. He especially never tempts us with sin. James says that. He's explicit about that. Chapter 1, verse 13 of his epistle. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts. No one. So God doesn't tempt us, but he does test us. He doesn't tempt us to do wrong. He doesn't, he doesn't have to tempt us to do wrong. That's already in us, right? That's natural. That's easy. But he does test us. Now, why? Why does God test his people? A teacher might teach on a subject for a period of time and then decide to test her students. And what is the purpose of that test? And I know cynically it probably depends on who and what funding source you ask, but at least one reason for a test is to see what the students know, what the students have learned. Apart from the test, it is hard for a teacher to know how well the students have comprehended the material. So in that type of example, we we test to see what people know, where they're at, because we don't know. That's that's often the view of a test. But that, that is really not what God is doing, okay? God already, think this through, God already knows where people are at. All right? God is not like us at, in this way. I wonder what will happen if I take these Mentos and I drop them in a bottle of soda, okay? God is not wondering. I wonder what will happen if I take this vinegar and I pour it into a pile of baking soda. God knows what is going to happen. He's made everything. He knows how it works, right? So he's not up there scratching his head. He doesn't need to know. The purpose of God's testing isn't so that he can figure out where people are at and what to do next. One purpose is so they can see where they're at and figure out what to do or not to do next. God tests and then God tests are revelatory for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. How we respond to them reveals our true spiritual condition. What we truly believe. So one reason that God tests us is to show us the truth about ourselves. Even to show us at times our own helplessness. Show us our own neediness. Things that can only be met in Him and through Him. A second reason that God tests His people is to refine their faith. The early church father, Clement of Rome, wrote about the sanctifying purpose of the wilderness, saying, after this, that would be the reference to the crossing of the Red Sea, Moses, by the command of God, whose providence is over all, led out the people of the Hebrews into the wilderness, that he might root out the evils which had clung to them by a long-continued familiarity with the custom of the Egyptians. So, when we come to Jesus, sometimes we come to the Lord with a long continued familiarity with the ways of the world and living under the ownership of the world. We come with customs and attitudes and, and behaviors that no longer apply to the redeemed, to the new creation and that really are no longer needed. But it's hard to get rid of them sometimes because we've leaned on them for so long or they've been a part of who we are for so many years. So God tests us sometimes just to get us to break these bad habits. Clement says to root out the evil, to root out the stuff in us that doesn't belong and that isn't necessary anymore. Gee, most of us don't like to throw anything away, even the bad stuff. But God tests us sometimes. Sometimes He even forces us to get rid of that stuff. That's harmful to us. I'm not going to give Him any glory. A third reason God tests His people is to develop their faith. It's to strengthen their faith. John McKay writes of the Israelites, For one thing, their faith was still very weak, and it would take time for their trust in the Lord to develop so that they would be able to face every set of circumstances without hesitation. They were therefore led into times of difficulty so that their spiritual faculties might be developed through use. And it it is God's leading, right? We've we've already covered that. He's leading them. A pillar of cloud by day, a fire by night. God is leading them. Even that passage we just read out of Exodus 17. They're moving out in stages and they come to Rephidim and they can't by the command of the Lord. God is leading them, but he's not leading them into five-star hotel situations. He's leading them into difficulty. Why is he doing that? So that their spiritual faculties might be developed through use. Why would God lead you into something difficult? To put your faith to the test and to strengthen your faith. It's easy to say that we live by faith, but when do we ever take it out of our back pocket? When do we ever actually put it into practice? How many circumstances do we even have in our lives where we can say, I have nothing in the tank and I have empty hands and the only way I can get through this is by believing in God. That happens, but it doesn't happen every day. With regularity, we count on other things. We count on our strength. We count on our competence. We count on our our gifts. We count on our bank account. We count on our friends and our family. and we don't have to live by faith, God sometimes leads us to difficult situations where we have to lean on Him and we have to exercise our faith and our faith will become developed through use. And the more that we do that, the more that we understand that He is reliable, the more ready we are when the next tough situation comes to turn to Him and not be rattled. But to be at peace like David in Psalm 62 who finds rest in God as His hope and salvation, His rock and His fortress even though bad things are happening all around him. God also tests us to teach. Charles Spurgeon, so the test isn't just the end of teaching, and teachers know that. The test is part of teaching. And God tests us to teach. Charles Spurgeon referred to the wilderness as the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students you feel like you're wandering through some wilderness today. You're going through the Oxford and Cambridge, for God's sake. That's the only way I would ever get into Oxford and Cambridge, I guess. There they went to the university, he says, and he taught and, and trained them, and they took their degree before they entered the promised land. So they're being training. It's, it's uh, Tony Morita, in his commentary, calls, calls it Wilderness university. Ross Blackburn uh, puts it in his book on Exodus: "The God who makes Himself known." He says, "God tests primarily to instruct." So we come again to Mara, this place where the water was bitter. Right, three days of journeying without a drink, the people are thirsty. They they come across some water, which seems like it's a great thing, but all of a sudden they find that it's undrinkable. How are they going to respond to this undrinkable, bitter water? And what will their response reveal? Verse 24 of chapter 15, and the people grumbled against Moses. And Moses does what the people should have done. He calls out to the Lord. And the Bible says that God showed him a log. And the Hebrew word here uh, indicates that God pointed it out to Moses. There it is, Moses. That's the log. And so there's a simple, profound teaching in this passage here that, that in response to a significant problem, Moses prayed to the Lord. God heard him. Not only did God listen, but he showed Moses the solution and he told him what to do. Moses threw the log into the water, and the water became sweet, and everybody had a drink. At that point, God initiates a covenant with Israel, which is just like a preview of a covenant that is to come. He lays out the terms of their relationship. He gives them a command, and like most of the covenants, it comes with warnings and promises. It comes with blessings and curses. This is what we read in Exodus 15:26 To the people from God, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His eyes and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. God is fashioning His people right here in this moment. He's showing them how to live as children of God. To be a child of God is to trust and obey, as the old hymn writer put it. Not only is it important that we listen to what God says, we also must do what God says, and that—that that is what it means to be a follower of God. To claim to be a disciple, a disciple—a disciple is a learner and a follower and and this this idea is reiterated by jesus in the great commission right that disciples make disciples not just by preaching and not just by baptizing but what he says what does he say he says teaching them to obey all that i have commanded god desires people who'll be faithful in obedience now note the covenant that god makes has mutual obligations if they will listen and obey then they will be spared the afflictions of egypt they will know God as their healer. That's a concept similar to the one that's conveyed by God to King Asa. You'll find it in Second Chronicles 15. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. It echoes the teaching of Deuteronomy 28, where Israel is told that if they will be careful to follow the Lord and His commands, then they will receive countless blessings, but if they do not obey, and if they do not follow, they will inherit just as many curses. That's not a side of God that a lot of us want to see. That's not a page we want to turn and and see that there's some sort of conditional thing going on here. So let me just say this, my friends. God is absolutely gracious. But neither the Old nor the New Testaments give permission for anyone to presume on God's gift. Neither ever gives the impression that it doesn't matter how you live, how you choose. Romans chapter 1 is probably the the most grievous and sad passage in the Scripture because it teaches us how God gave them over. People persisted in sin and God gave them over. How tragic. (laughs) So here's this mini covenant at Merah. Israel's learning that they are free, but they are not uh, independent. They are free, but they are not completely autonomous. They are free, but they are not self-sufficient. They are free, but they are not self-ruling. They are not free to do anything they want. Walter Bruggeman puts it this way, the liberation from Egypt does not lead to autonomy for Israel, but rather to an alternative sovereignty that imposes an alternative regimen on the liberated slaves they're free to follow God and be blessed they are free not to follow him and remain unhealed and isn't that the same choice that confronts every living breathing human being every day you are free to follow God and be blessed or not follow him and remain unhealed the next test of God's people comes in the wilderness of sin we read about it last week This time the people are hungry. They are hangry. They are in need of food. They are fearful of starvation. God demonstrates his power over creation by causing quail to come into the camp that they can eat. And then he uh, also creates this flaky stuff on the ground that's called manna. The people call it manna. And it is miraculous provision of God, like the water at Mara, another invitation of God to his people to trust in him that he's going to take care of them and it is also another test of the people because god designs it so that the manna shows up in the morning when a day's provision is to be gathered he makes it so the people can have only as much as they need verse 18 of chapter 16 says the people scooped up the manna but when they measured it with an omer whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack that's a pretty cool thing we can read right over, but God is somehow saying, look, i got a bushel. No, you don't. No, I don't. You know, I didn't give very much. Yes, you did. Yes, I did. This is God making sure that everybody is provided for, everybody had as much as they could eat. He sees to it that the people have just enough And he also sees to it that they have to learn to trust him one day at a time because they're supposed to use all the manna that they gather that morning on the day they gathered, and they're not supposed to keep any of it left over. And the lesson here is just what Jesus was trying to teach us in the disciples' prayer when he taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Learning to lean on God daily for what is needed that day. Now, not surprisingly, a few folks had some problems with this rule that God made about collecting manna. They didn't trust him enough, or maybe they trusted themselves too much. It's hard to say, but some tried to keep part of the manna until morning. They probably thought they were being wise. You know, they're just squirreling a little bit away, just in case uh, that uh, proverbial rainy day comes, a day when the manna is not available. So they broke the rules to have a little set aside. And we might wonder there, well, what's the, what's the big deal? I mean, what's the issue with setting a little bit aside if these folks do want to save up for a rainy day? Most, most of us have had that drilled into our heads. The problem is that first and foremost, they are, they are acting in direct defiance of an order given by Moses. They, God appointed Moses to tell them what to do, and Moses did that, and they defied him completely. Moses is chosen by God to lead these people. He told them specifically not to leave any manna until morning. But these guys have not had, listen, I don't, we can be critical of them. That's easy. But think it through. These guys have not had true spiritual leaders for a long, long, as long as they've been alive. In other words, they have never had anybody charged with looking out for them truly shepherding their souls, caring for their welfare. They have been slaves in Egypt. They have been the property of a despot. Anything that they ever had, they had to scrape to make it happen. So they lived and grew up in a dog-eat-dog world, and they had those customs of Egypt hard and fast in them. So they, they didn't trust Moses at that time they have lived with lack they felt the pressure to provide how many of you ever felt that pressure to provide and so it wasn't easy for them to just like like the little card says just let go and let God and who wrote that they follow the inclination of their flesh they succumb to worry about tomorrow and some of them defy the command of Moses. So that's the first problem. They would defy The second problem with that rainy day strategy and probably the more prevalent or more important problem is this, that it, it leads to self-reliance instead of God-reliance. That's the issue. It leads to self-reliance instead of God-reliance. God didn't want the people to put away any manner for the simple reason that he wanted to wake up every day and rejoice in his provision. That he had given them what they needed for that day. And He wanted them to be sensitive to His presence and to His faithful provision every single day. God knows any amount of treasures that you and I would store up in this world can easily become our security. And that we may be tempted to depend on those things rather than to depend on Him. But to be a child of God is to walk by faith with Him daily, in daily dependence, one day at a time. We don't just need Him when things are going sideways. We need Him when things are going great. We need Him all the time. And He wants us to know that and live it one day at a time, leaning on Him. That's how we live by faith. That's what the Lord is teaching these Israelites in the wilderness. So when they broke the rules and they tried to store up today's manna for tomorrow, God made it rot. He made it so that wor- it was full of worms. Open up your little Omer. Worms, and it stinks. Except on the event of the Sabbath. On the day the, prior to the Sabbath, the folks could gather two days' work. And that way, on the Sabbath, God made it so they didn't have to work. They were able to rest. And again, some of the people balked at this rule. They went out on the Sabbath. They went out looking for breakfast. They thought they might need some more. There was nothing to be found. And catch this. Their behavior got Moses into trouble. God chides Moses. Exodus 16, verses 28, 29. How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remember each of you in his, uh, remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. How long will you, Moses, refuse to keep my commandments? And Moses will be, what did I do? I'm just trying to lead these people. and They're not paying attention to me. They don't believe me and they won't trust me and they defy me and God isn't getting into it. You see why shepherding is so important? You see why it matters that if you want to be a leader, you will give an account for the souls of your sheep. That's what the Bible says. God is going to look at you and say, how come she did that? How come he was over here when he should have been over there? You see why elders should take their job so seriously? Why pastoring matters so much. So Moses is in a little bit of trouble with God because these Hebrew people didn't trust God. And they gathered more than they were supposed to, and then they tried to go out and gather it when they shouldn't have. But you know, one thing these guys were used to was work. That is one thing they did know. Because under Pharaoh, that's all they did. And their worth, as long as they'd been alive, was clearly tied up in their productivity. All their life. But they're not under Pharaoh anymore. You don't work for Him anymore is what God is trying to say. You are not responsible to produce the same way that you once were when you lived under a a greedy dictator and your job was to preserve uh, His legacy or create His wealth. Now you serve God and your job is to give Him glory. And you'll do that by obeying Him. He will meet your needs. And you don't have to work so hard to meet those needs. That's something that we would have to learn and relearn, don't you think? We have to remember that we are not under the world and the ways of the world. We don't work for him anymore. We are children of the king. If we don't remember this, we're going to get caught up in in that idea of production equals worth mindset. And then when we can't produce, we're going to have a sense that we're not worth anything, anyone. Right, it's not true. Because as human beings, we have innate value, innate worth. It's not tied to the productivity. We have to remember, too, that our God knows our needs and that he will supply them, he will meet them out of the abundance of his riches. Early and often, God demanded that his people distinguish themselves from all other people And demonstrate their faith in him by their ability, listen, and by their willingness to rest. To cease striving. And the same is true today. The same is true today, but the idea does seem to be lost in modern Christianity. We are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. So We have to be careful about using phrases that I have to work. We use that to justify shirking other responsibilities that the Lord has placed upon us, and even higher priorities, priorities of worship, priorities in the family. Of course we should work, but we should not work at the expense of worship. And we should not work at the expense of rest, And God will never put his people in a position where they need to work if it means they can't worship and they can't rest. That's just not a biblical thought. It's not a biblical possibility. God has made us to rest. God has made us to worship. They are demonstrations of faith and trust. By allowing the double portion on the day before the Sabbath, God was trying to teach his people that they would not suffer deprivation by carrying out his commands he's going to reward them work and worship work and rest that's what it means like to be a chosen child of god he will take care of them that's what he was trying to teach him he will take care of you that's what he wants you to know at Maron in the wilderness of sin it was god who was testing the people as we moved to the third final location in the narrative we're in Rephidim to a place later known as Massa and Meribah because of the provocation, the temptation that was taking place there. It is not God who's testing the people. It's the people who are putting God to the test. After all he's done for them, this is the place where they begin to wonder if he's truly with them. And for the second time, they come to a place there's no water and the people are thirsty. Did they learn anything at Merah? Did they learn anything at the first place where there was no water and God provided? It doesn't look like it. Old habits die hard, don't they? You have got to crucify old habits and then stomp them on the head regularly. That's why the old Puritan says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Old habits die hard. One thing I have learned about God's faithfulness over the years, perhaps you've learned this as well, is that if I don't learn the lesson that he's trying to teach me the first time, he gives me another chance. That's how good he is to us. You might be here this morning, whatever's going on in your life that you're not really happy with, and you're like, why does this keep happening to me? Great question. You might want to search for the lesson that the Lord is trying to teach you. You might want to listen and see what he's up to. To do the same thing and expect a different result is the definition of insanity, right? Some of you are, you're already thinking that. You're sitting there going, I know this. I say it this way to a lot of people in counseling. I'm like, if you want a different cake, you better put some different ingredients in it. Keep doing the same thing, you're going to get the same result. The people complain. The complaining uh, escalates to confrontation, and then they quarrel with Moses. And if Moses isn't being melodramatic here, it looks like they're about to uh, mutiny. It looks like they're about to kill him. And the Lord tells him what to do. Grab that staff. Go get some elders. Go to this rock. I'm going to stand here. I want you to strike that rock. Abundant water is going to come out of it. Everybody's going to get something to drink. And Moses did exactly that. He, he is the example of obedience here. And then he renamed that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel because they tested the Lord. So here at Massa, Israel fails to trust God. They take it to a new level of awful. They question God. And to use the famous words of C.S. Lewis, they put God in the dock. That is, they have God standing in the place of a defendant in a court of law. Tim Chester says in his Exodus commentary uh, that this is what we do when we grumble and complain. He says when we grumble and complain, that's what we're doing. We're putting God on trial and we're finding him guilty. He has failed to deliver us the life that we want. He, he, he has failed to give us what we feel that we deserve. He, he hasn't given us the better that we think we need. That's the mindset at Massa and Meribah, okay? That is a what have you done for me lately attitude toward the Lord. And that is a shameful faithlessness. Which all that to say, as we wrap up, the Israelites are not testing well. They're just not testing well. And it makes me wonder, beloved, how are you testing? How are you doing in your wilderness journey sanctification? We opened our worship this morning with some words from Psalm 95. We're going to close them with Psalm 95. 95 but before we do that i want to ask you to bow your heads just for a moment of quiet just just for a time of response allow the spirit of the lord to speak to you this morning the spirit of the lord that we need in his goodness he searches the hearts of men he reveals to us things we cannot know ourselves i want to ask you a few questions and i'm not really asking these rhetorically And I'd like you to just ponder them while we're quiet with our heads bowed. Is it possible that you are facing a test right now? Have you even thought your struggles or your difficulties in this way? Not bad luck. Not unfortunate circumstances. Have you considered what you're going through? Have you contemplated in the midst of these circumstances just what is God up to? In other words, are you looking for him, not just to deliver you from a mess, but to find him in the mess, or to believe that he has somehow led you into this mess? God be trying to show you about you? What might He be trying to show you about your true spiritual condition? You would be brave. What evil? God Almighty trying to root out. What is he trying to? T- your heads bowed just for a second, a few seconds more and let me just finish up. Hear these words, beloved, God loves you. You, Christian, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He is working on you. He is working in you. And the one who began a good work in you will complete it. Do not forget that in each of these three tests faced by the Israelites, God provided. God provided to the imperfect, to the stubborn, to the immature, to the undeserving. God provided bountifully, graciously, generously because of his mercy, because of his compassion, because of his love. Consider this morning, if you are up against something difficult, something truly challenging, a great need, a lack, it could just be that God in his faithfulness is helping you to learn what it means to truly be his child. Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8, so today, today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your wise leading that even brings us to places we would much rather not go. We know you are good. We thank you that you love us, that you're more than capable of providing each and every need that we might have. Thank you for loving us enough to test us and try us. Your spirit work in us, solid faith, from which you will receive the glory you deserve. Deliver us from the temptation, God, to look at the hard things, the evil, the injustices and the unfairness to look at those things and simply react by hardening our hearts, holding out our arms and keeping everything at bay building up little walls of self-protection. Deliver us from those easy habits, those old habits, and remind us we don't work for them anymore. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.